The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. We are live at the Glenn Show. Welcome, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. I teach at Brown University, and I'm a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which sponsors the Glenn Show. I'm here with John McWhorter, the estimable linguist from Columbia University and newsletter columnist for the New York Times, my conversation partner every other week at the Glenn Show. And we're joined by Don Baton. That's a pseudonym, a, a stage name, a, a nom de plume, or what do you call that? Nom de guerre? <laughs> Don, Don is, Don is yeah. an anonymous contributor uh, to the Glenn Show today. Uh, he is uh, involved in the classical music world and uh, publishes under his pseudonym a uh, newsletter at Substack called The Podium, where he comments on all manner of issues having to do with the classical music world. Um, and uh, he's joined us to talk about uh, that and about uh, his concerns about uh, some of the uh, uh, unfolding dynamics in uh, that part of our culture uh, uh, related to wokeness and diversity and inclusion issues. But that uh, doesn't exhaust his uh, uh, his range of interest. Uh, Don, welcome to The Glenn Show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. I want listeners to know that Don's voice has also been uh, disguised so as not to be recognizable. Uh, it may sound a little weird to you, but uh, we're working hard to maintain his anonymity. Uh, I'm going to turn the chair of this meeting over to John McWhorter, my estimable colleague and partner, because he knows a lot more about music than I do. But I'll chime in from time to time. John. Thank you, Glenn. Um, Don, good to have you here. And I'm... I am um, happy to have the opportunity to wear a different hat on this episode. And I want to jump right in and ask you about something. This is really delicate territory. And I'm going to get in trouble for this, but frankly, I don't care. Over the past three or four years, there has been this fashion for programming the symphonies of Florence Price. Florence Price was two things. She was a woman and she was black. And she was also in the past, and there are photographs of her, and it's, you know, they're in black and white. You see this dignified-looking person who wasn't given her due, partly because she was a woman and partly because she was black. And I have had the experience of buying recordings of her symphonies, and in one instance, hearing a live performance, and finding myself perplexed that I didn't find that the work was great as opposed to good. And at first I thought there was something wrong with me, but then I started kind of quietly asking some qualified people whether I was crazy, and <laughs> apparently I'm not. And you're one of those people. What's going on with the Florence Price revival, and how might we do a better job of bringing race issues into classical music? 
Okay, so Florence Price was a composer who lived or was at the peak of her powers in the 1930s to early 1950s. She has been known about for quite a long time. A trove of her music was discovered around 2010 of additional music, but most of her oeuvre has been publicly available for quite a while. And I, as a conductor, knew about her as a sort of middle contributor American composer for a while. I wasn't too familiar with her music until about two years ago, when all of a sudden her music started being programmed absolutely everywhere. And with rhapsodic endorsements from some of the greatest names in our industry, the Philadelphia Orchestra, especially, took up the mantle of the Florence Price Project, committed to recording all of her symphonies. I have that CD, yeah. And in the media blitz around that, I remember reading a quotation from the music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra, Yannick Nezit Seguin, saying that Florence Price, not only was she unjustly neglected, but we should be thinking of her music and orchestral programming the way we should be thinking of Brahms or Dvorak, that this should be canonic music. And at that time, I just saw this as such a sort of dissonance in my head. This was someone whose music I wasn't really familiar with. I considered myself well musically educated, and I didn't know anything about her. So I made it my business to know about her. I actually had to learn some of her music as part of my work, and I studied other pieces of hers down to knowing the symphonies pretty well. The major symphonic poems, she wrote a fair amount of orchestral music, and found that basically your appraisal is absolutely correct. She was a decent composer, someone who's probably at about the 80th percentile of compositional talent of composers who've ever lived. But the bottom 95 percentile of composers, you don't hear their music ever. And probably only the top 20% have even I, someone in the industry, heard of. It became clear to me that she was someone who was getting a boost from somewhere else. And when you read some of the things written about her music, it became increasingly clear what the nature of this boost was. A narrative had developed that her music was not played largely because she was a woman and because she was black. And not only had this limited her advancement during her career, which it certainly did, she worked in Arkansas and then Chicago in the 1930s and 40s, but it had continued to limit the amount that she's played up to today, even as her music had become widely known. And that to me was just clearly not the case. And what was going on was that in the 2020 racial reckoning period, orchestras desperately wanted to program more composers of color and especially more female composers of color. And if you are looking for a black female composer who wrote in the period that audiences most want to hear the romantic style, you're down to one or two people. And so Florence Price had really become, I described her in my article, The Price of Equity, as the indispensable woman in this project. And she truly was she was someone who had to be made into a great composer. And so she was. Can I just ask a question uh, briefly, which is what, if you could say, Don, characterizes a great, as distinct from an okay, but not great composer? What, do you, what, what are the criteria for this assessment that you're making? When I was writing the first part of my series on Florence Price, I anticipated that question. So that's actually the topic of the entire second part of the series, which is in-depth evaluation of the symphonies of Price on several criteria. One of the interesting things about the sort of mainstream of classical music is great works appeal instinctively to people who are not intellectually initiated into having studied music theory. John, I know you're a great fan of classical music, but you're not a professional musician, and yet these things appeal to you instinctively. And for me, someone who has made a career in the field, there are more specific criteria that we can talk about. One of them with orchestral music is always orchestration. It's how the actual resources of the orchestra are used. How effective is the orchestration? Which means when you delineate into melody, into counter-melody, into accompaniment, can you hear everything clearly? And then secondarily, the question of expressiveness of orchestration. Is the interest of this getting some sort of emotional point across? And so that was one set of criteria that I looked at. Another one was form. 
how the different melodies and musical materials are organized, how they're used. There's a drama to the symphony. We lay out materials that are in some sort of opposition or tension with one another. And then through this section that music theorists called the development section, they're picked apart, worked out, and then put back together in some way that advances the argument of the piece. And that was an area where Florence Price, to me, really falls short, because she was a very skilled, I would say, miniaturist. She's someone who was at her best, like Chopin, on short piano pieces, short pieces of chamber music. And when she tried to turn herself into Dvorak, with whom she's often compared, I think somewhat ridiculously, the wheels do start to fall off a little bit. But any listeners who are interested can read part two of The Price of Equity. Yeah, we'll link to and that. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's brilliant, Don. And, and I think um, it's interesting. I hadn't heard her until a couple years ago. I had heard of her, but I hadn't actually listened in. And I forget who wrote it, you'll probably know, but somebody said in an interview that what they liked about her work was that she liked to give each instrument its voice. And so one section will do a solo and then another section will do a solo. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, that's, um, you know, that's like praising a basketball player for liking to jump or something like that. I thought, wait a minute, this is somebody who does not truly admire this person's work. This is a backhanded compliment. And so I was wary from there. And what it basically comes down to, Glenn, in response to your question is, yeah. you know, there's a, there was a certain kind of person, especially a couple generations ago when classical music was more mainstream than it is now, who liked classical music that was melodic, that was harmonically lush, not the advanced stuff, but the more, the more approachable music, people who liked Van Cliburn. I'm thinking about my mother, for example. And I remember how in our living room, his recording of Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto was always sitting somewhere on the floor. My mother liked it. I don't think my mother listened to much Berio or Bartok, but she liked classical music that normal people like when they hear it the first time. And that is a great piece, and it bears multiple listenings. And it's a beautiful example of how you develop things in the sense that Don is talking about, where you get two beautiful themes and then he does stuff with them. I think if anybody listened to Florence Price's music, it's not that it's bad, but if anybody listened to Florence Price's music and didn't know that it was written by a rather doleful looking black woman in a black and white photo where we want to give her her due because she lived in a time of terrible racism. If you just listened to it and you thought it was written by somebody named, you know, William Jones, who was some white guy from Connecticut, anybody would know, wait a minute, this isn't on the level of what Rachmaninoff did at all. And the issue here is not, well, okay, why do you have to compare it to Rachmaninoff? But then again, many people find Rachmaninoff a little corny. I mean, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really scaling the heights of the heights of the heights. But still, anybody would know. And so there's a, there's a condescension involved here. And what bothers me is that there are black composers that you could use. Unfortunately, they, they tend not to happen to be women, although there is Margaret Bonds. But you could use who really are the peers of these people who are in, say, the upper 5%. But it isn't her, and I'm just worried that at this point, you can listen to NPR, Price is beginning to be said just as a straight last name. We're expected to know. It's Rachmaninoff, Beethoven, Debussy, Price. And the thing is, Price isn't on the level of the other ones. And I have a hard time taking it as a compliment. And um, Don, you have written you know, a wonderful you know, multiple-part piece that gets this across. And you're not tearing her down. But you're being real, and I, I appreciate that. How yeah. were you received? Oh, excuse me. 
Go ahead, Don. I think it was important, as you were just saying, John, to emphasize that you can acknowledge the fact that Florence Price was a decent composer and someone who faced extraordinary obstacles and triumphed over them and is a great story for that reason without burdening her legacy with this task, reclaiming all of classical music. Yeah. All right. Don, a question. I have gotten missives here and there that suggest that because of the racial reckoning, there are people being accepted for orchestral positions who are of color, specifically black, who would not be accepted otherwise, that they don't quite have the chops. Can you please tell me if that isn't true? I hope that's not true, but I keep on getting emails about it. Unfortunately, I would say, in my experience, it probably is true. It's true both in the case of composers of color and in the case of female composers, and especially female composers of color. But I don't really have to talk from my own experience about this. I mean, players. Yes, it's fully out in the open. Back in 2020, this was actually sort of the episode that got me interested in doing this project to begin with, because classical music seemed to be going off a cliff. This was when Tony Tomasini, who was the head music critic for the New York Times since retired, published an article advocating that blind auditions for orchestras should be abolished. Now, this is a unique tool in classical music that was introduced in, I think, the early 70s, something like that, and allows the orchestra to be one of the most meritocratic kinds of institutions in the world. You can audition without being seen. You can audition without having your voice heard. And this was the institution that basically delivered gender parity in the orchestra world in a matter of 25 to 30 years, which is pretty incredible. And now basically it was being argued that even though this is the most fair system, by definition, it is not equitable because it's not delivering enough players of color. And so this was Tony Tomasina's argument. And I read this, music critics argue ridiculous things pretty frequently. I expected to see my musical social media accounts just papered with people saying what the heck is this guy talking about? And it was exactly the opposite of that. It was, first of all, a lot of no comment. And then a fair number of people saying this is great, including orchestra administrators. And I started to see soon after that a lot of orchestras, actually, through conferences held by the League of American Orchestras, talking about introducing criteria into the process for evaluating musicians that would allow racial factors to be taken into account. The usual argument that's used to support this is that orchestras have a community outreach and relations function. And how can you possibly hope to reach a largely black community in an urban area if you don't have such and such number of black musicians? And I suppose from the perspective of an individual black musician who wants to be part of the orchestra, that's fine. But for someone who's of any other background, who's worked their entire life to get here, it's profoundly unfair. And similar logic is being used with conductors as well. I wrote actually about that a couple months ago, when the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra announced the hiring of a conductor named Jonathan Hayward as its music director. I don't actually know Jonathan Hayward. He may be a fabulous conductor. He's a young black man originally from Charleston, South Carolina. He was hired at the age of 29. The previous two music directors had been in their 50s and 60s when they were hired. But the wild thing about this was that in the announcement of his hiring, the orchestra did not merely say the usual of, we're so excited by all the artistic energy that this person brings, the usual stuff. It said that this hire is also an attempt to make it so that young people in Baltimore can see themselves on the podium, which is a lovely sentiment, but it's basically admitting that at least a large reason why this person was hired was that he's black. Not only is it bad for the industry, but it's bad for Jonathan Hayward himself, who will never really be able to get out from under that. So I have two questions in this issue of meritocracy. One has to do with how much does it matter? 
if the first violinist is not the very best person who auditioned, how, how much difference does it make? How, how big is the gap? And the other is, uh, what is there blowback? I mean, are, are there people resentful? Or are there people who are harboring uh, a sense not only of unfairness, but of the degradation of the art that is uh, attendant to compromising meritocratic status? Uh, and, and do they, do they uh, you know, give voice to this, uh, uh, you know, objection to, to the degradation? So how, how much degradation and how are people reacting to it? To your second question, the answer would be there's quite a lot of blowback, which is one of the reasons why I have so many subscribers from inside the industry. A lot of the things that I've learned that I write about in my articles are gleaned from my career of going out and talking to people while working as a conductor. The sentiments that I attribute to unnamed people are not just pulled out of the air. These are things that I'm actually hearing when I go out. But to your first question about the degrading of the art, I think this is an argument that's actually pretty frequently made. That orchestras today are operating at such an impossibly high level that if you were to go with the fifth best violinist instead of the first best one, the average person sitting in the audience won't know the difference. And that, I would say, over an arc of time, is false. Over the course of five to ten years, it may not make a difference because the tenures are so long in orchestras. But really when I'm looking at this, I look at it from the opposite perspective. From the perspective of the young musician coming up in this industry. What are the messages that they are getting? The messages that they used to get with. If you practice enough to make yourself into the most incredible practitioner of your art, you will get your just dessert. And now that person, instead of ending up in a first chair in the Chicago Symphony, might have a chance to have a chair in the Phoenix Symphony. If you are a young musician coming up, that's a profoundly discouraging prospect. So I think as far as the degradation of the quality of the art in the long term, that's the most likely mechanism by which it's going to happen. People just deciding that this life is not for them. And the sad thing is that there is a certain kind of person who would listen to us having this conversation and say that that is fine because of George Floyd and redlining. Roughly that, you know, if you've read ta Coates and then lived through George Floyd, then what you just said is the way that it should be and white people need to just get over it. And you know what? I'm sorry, but I... <laughs> I, I disagree. There, there are different ways of running a railroad. And it's interesting, that idea of seeing yourself. And I've, I've never, for one thing, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to see myself in the things that I wanted to do. That idea that you have to see somebody who's, you know, the same race as you in order to really want to do it. I feel like that's something that Black people started being told roughly in about 1975 as opposed to what real people think. You never hear that, for example, from Chinese or Chinese-American students. You don't have to see yourself in order to want to do something. And as far as classical music is concerned, I can't help thinking about the fact that I grew up in Philadelphia, where I get the feeling, because of random tradition, until, I think, the 90s, Classical instruments were put into public school kids' hands, and public school in Philadelphia essentially means brown kids, and especially black kids, especially back then. And I remember I went to Settlement Music Camp in 1981, 2, and 3. And in Settlement Music Camp, you played in an orchestra all summer. I played cello back then. And I wasn't thinking about it at the time. But when I look back, for some reason, most of the string players were black. So the head violinist was a black girl. Roz, if you are by any chance watching this, you <laughs> are a fierce 
player. And then <laughs> in the violas, the head of the viola section was Lisa. Lisa, you really might be watching this. You were fierce too, and you're still my friend. The head cellist, <laughs> frankly, was me. And the person sitting next to me was always black. And the person who had been head cellist the year before I came was a black guy named Robert Walker who came and visited the first year I was there in a muscle shirt and clearly would have no trouble beating people up. And he was also probably a better cellist than me. Black people play the string instruments. And if I may, the stringed instruments are kind of harder than a lot of the other instruments in the orchestra. And that's just the way it was. Now, in the second violin section. And I, I haven't thought about this until now. Suddenly things got whiter and Asianer. You know, that those were the second people. The head of the second violins was not black, except for when Lisa from the violas was in that section taking care of it at one point. And we never thought anything of it. The oboe players and the percussion players, they were white. Those were the white kids from the Northeast. But the black kids from West Philly and Germantown and Mount Airy, we ruled the strings. And no, we were not bow-tied, uptight sorts. This was a very authentically black section. One of them was a Muslim playing behind me in the, in the cello section. So to me, this idea that, you know, classical music is somehow too white and needs to be changed, I partly don't get it because I grew up with classical music being very much a black thing. You know, my mother and my father played every instrument and, you know, I was in the cello, et cetera. But yeah, this this idea that black people are going to come because they see a black person conducting, for one thing, is that true? I doubt it. That if, if black Baltimore isn't particularly interested in classical music, which wouldn't surprise me and which I don't think is a problem, are they really going to start listening to Prokofiev and Bruckner because there's a young black guy up there waving his arms? No. All of this strikes me as extremely fake. Yeah. One of the strange things to me or strange things I've found is the unspoken assumption that exists in orchestras around the country that if you manage to find more black soloists, more black conductors, and more black composers like Florence Price, that black people are going to come streaming into the concert hall to watch, and not only come to those shows, but then subscribe to the orchestra. This is often spoken of as a business proposition that our subscriber base is dwindling and we need to be more diverse. I've had my ear pretty well to the ground of the League of American Orchestra's business research and such. They're always trying to commission studies proving that things like this are the case, and I have not seen one. It's taken as just an assumption, and it's proven to be an incredibly expensive assumption and one that has also, I think, detracted a fair amount, especially on the programming side. You talked about Florence Price, but there are so many concert programs around the country that could have the potential to inspire new audience members with how great our art is. And people come in, they hear Florence Price 3, and whether black or white, they think, this is it. I couldn't blame them for that. So yeah, I think there used to be an assumption in classical music and many other forms of music that there's a universality to what we do. Classical music did not sweep Korea and China and Japan in the 60s to 90s by making itself more Korean, Chinese, and Japanese. It just happens to contain fabulous music that appeals to humanity on its human level. And I think that the same can be said of many of the great arts and the great musical arts. Despite the fact that that black people are overrepresented in jazz, and especially the history of jazz, that doesn't diminish its power to me as a non-black person. That that logic should apply in classical music really makes no sense. And there's no data to back it up at this point. Don, I gotta ask you, uh, as we near the end of our time with you, uh, you know, your camera's off and your voice is disguised. You're incognito here. Um, obviously, you don't want your identity revealed and we will respect that. But what are you afraid of? 
Uh, what, what ill effects, what negative repercussions do you anticipate could attend you publicly taking the positions that you've taken here uh, and signing your real name to them? If we remained in the classical music culture of the 80s, 90s, and even early 2000s, I would say that the risks to me would be minimal, because music is by its very definition an expressive art, and it's usually valued personal expression as a core tenet. But over the last especially five years, really classical music has centralized itself around one organization, that being the League of American Orchestras, around one way of thinking, which is promulgated to orchestral administrators at orchestras around the country. And right now, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really wokeism, for lack of a better term, is is the ideology. If you are a conductor trying to get work with orchestras around the country, it's an incredibly competitive occupation. If you come with even an iota of baggage, let alone baggage that says that the entire orthodoxy ought to be overturned, you're not getting work. It consigns people who are living in the reality zone, like myself, to live somewhat of a double life. Sorry to hear that. You know, that. folks, I want to say that... um. What's very important here is not that there is no such thing as sterling classical music written by black American people. George Walker, William Dawson. Walker, Dawson. They didn't happen to be women, but they are towering figures, and they deserve the kind of attention that Florence Price is getting lately. And I hope, I'm not in the classical music industry, but I hope that as we get a little further from the murder of George Floyd and the racial reckoning that the classical music industry can start being a little more honest and stop condescending to us with this, this, this backhanded compliment of pretending that Florence Price was Brahms. Because there are people who were, who aren't getting as much attention, partly because they don't have that certain glamour that she has because she was not only black, but a woman. And I swear part of it is one particular photo of her where your heart goes out because it's like she's saying to us, I'm not getting my due because I'm a black woman here in the racist past. I get the pathos of that photo. The photos of these other two people aren't as, as gripping. Nevertheless, everybody, please take a listen to their music because you will see what all of the noise has been about, about them. But unfortunately, it isn't talked about in broader circles. No, I absolutely agree with that. Dawson, excellent composer. George Walker, several great pieces to discover. I am also a big William Grant still fan myself. But yes, and just in general, going back to Florence Price, in order to appreciate great or even good art, we don't need to try to delude ourselves into claiming that it's Beethoven. In Florence Price's case, it has blinded us to much greater talents, including black talents. All right. Yes. Well, Don, thank you. Very interesting. Um, why don't you ring off and John and I will continue. Thank you. It's great to talk to you both. Thank you, Don. Indeed. All right, John. Glenn, I'm going to go get um, a little more coffee. I will, be, I will be right back. Okay. We will edit this pause out of the recording when we post. Or we won't. Or we'll allow me to have a soliloquy uh, here. And I do have a thought. <laughs> this whole um, set of issues that we've been discussing with the uh, pseudonymous Don Baton um, seems to hinge upon ideas about identity that a person might question right at their foundation. I mean, who are we? 
and uh, we're human um, and, and we're capable of all manner of expression, creativity, sensitivity, feeling, uh, power in our humanity that gets expressed in many different venues and music is one of them. We're human. So when we allow the relatively superficial dimensions of identity, like our race, to have more sway than they should, we end up with the kind of degradation of art at the highest level that Don Baton was uh, giving a report about, that he is giving at his podcast, The Podium, a report about. And we shouldn't settle for that. John is back. John, I was just filling in. Uh, we may or may not use my soliloquy. You were not implicated in it. <laughs> what did you What did you say? I, I simply said the diversity thing is off the hook. We're human here. We're not mainly black or Chinese or male or uh, homosexual or whatever. We're human beings. And in the highest realm of art, it's our humanity, a refinement of our human spirit that gets expressed through, in this case, music. That's what we're talking about. And the road to uh, mediocrity is going to be paved with petty identitarianism. That is, with fixing on something like this. Oh, I'm black. That kid's black. I'm playing the cello. That kid is now inspired to play the cello. I mean, why make it about race? When Don said uh, classical music sweeps through the Orient, Japan, Korea, China in decades from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and we come up with all these amazing musicians. Uh, he said they didn't have to find Chineseness in the European composers who they were playing uh, or whatever. They they found a, a sublime expression of human excellence and creativity in those individuals, and they sought to uh, mimic it. They sought to reproduce it in their own way. And that's what we should be doing across the board. That's what I said. I'm sorry it took me so long to repeat. That's okay. And there's a kind of good white person who listens to you saying that and says it's not just about skin color. And what they're thinking is roughly it's about redlining and what ta Coates wrote about. And it's about George Floyd. And so the black people that we're talking about are suffering from the legacy of having been held back by Jim Crow such as redlining, which is what a lot of them are thinking because of ta article. And then look at how the police treat black people, George Floyd. And so it's not only that people are brown, but people are set back. They're oppressed. They, you know, they, they're not getting a certain boost. They don't have privilege. And so we need to adjust to that. And so the question becomes, why? So, okay, yes, redlining. Yes, George Floyd. Why does that mean that somebody should be placed or promoted beyond what a white person would. Explain your rationale. How is that good? And in particular, maybe you do it for a generation. What is your rationale for thinking that's the way it should go until the world is perfect or even close to it? That's where I think people get stuck. So there's a certain kind of person who reads, you know, whatever, and thinks it's not just the color of the skin. The people in Korea and Japan, they didn't have the George Floyd problem. They weren't suffering from redlining. We black Americans are different. But I get the feeling people, well, I don't get the feeling, I know that people are not asked to truly justify their position. How is it different? 
ultimately. That's the way I think of it. Okay, yes, we've suffered great injustice. But does that mean that we have to be underestimated and given boosts and deprived of actually competing according to real standards forever? And would you do it to your own kids? That's what people don't get asked. You know, this blind audition uh, thing uh, really uh, disturbs me. Um, I remember reading this classic paper in the economics literature uh, by Claudia Golden and Cecilia Rouse, uh, two economists, Cecilia at Princeton, uh, Claudia at Harvard, on where they got the numbers from all these symphony orchestras of the gendered composition of the uh, uh, musicians who were selected to play. And they tracked how they changed over time. And they took note of when blind audition as a practice was introduced into the selection of musicians in the orchestra. And they found pretty definitively that the introduction of that technique of having people play behind a screen for the first or second or third round of the selection process causally uh, induced a significant increase in the participation of women in those orchestras. It was the solution to the problem. The problem was women were being discriminated against without a question of equal competency when the uh, conductor and uh, selection committee could see that it's a woman, she was less likely to get the post. When they were unable to see, she became equally likely to get the post, and it was her talent that determined the outcome. How is this not a revolutionary good thing? Undoing that has very significant consequences, not only with respect to race. Uh, so it, it feels like a... Um, uh, a step back in the wrong uh, direction, um, actually. You know, it's, um, I have, you know, no beef with Anthony Tomasini. I read his criticism for years. I've got, I've got a book of his, et cetera. But quite frankly, his idea that we should not have blind auditions in order to increase the number of black people in orchestras is bat shit crazy. And it's a perfect example not of him having an individual problem. It's an example of how this business of race and equity has become something that people no longer actually use logic when they think about. And yes, I'm trying not to say religious because I know that gets monotonous, but this is a religion. For him to make an argument that is that utterly incoherent, that makes that little sense, that is so unjust, is clearly a white person who feels that making a certain kind of noise is more important even than making sense. And he's representative. That's the thing. He's not an outlier. He's not eccentric. But it was that argument that was one of many things that made me write my book, Woke Racism, thinking that there's a certain kind of white person who feels that it's okay to not make any damned sense out of a sense that that's what it is to understand how systemic racism works. But no, you know, from, you're, you're telling truth here. And even he must know it on some level, but he thinks that when it comes to black people, it's okay not to make sense. I'm sorry, but that's not civil rights. It's also not equality, it seems to me. Mm -mm. Um, I mean, people know, don't they know? I mean, uh, maybe at the very, very, very highest level of achievement, the distinctions between people's mastery is difficult to discern. but. If you're down below the 99th percentile to the 90th or to the 85th or to the 80th, the difference between the performative skills of one and the other person are going to be discernible. So everybody knows that 
the person who gets in under this dispensation of treating Blacks differently is good, but maybe not as good as we could have done or whatever. And, and there's a kind of corrupt uh, dishonesty, it seems to me, in, in that world, a kind of cynicism. It, 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 uh, it's creepy to me, the, the, the thought that, um, I mean, just imagine what it would be like if you put the same uh, practice in uh, some different venues, like in professional sports where everybody can see that Mr. A can run faster than Mr. B, but Mr. B gets the job and Mr. A doesn't because you need to have a certain outcome. There's a, it, 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 it just kind of undermines a sense of uh, the possibility of Mr. B ever getting a dignified equality uh, of respect and uh, uh, appreciation within whatever that venue is. He's always going to be being patronized, it seems to me. Yeah. And unfortunately, and we've talked about this before, but what it comes down to is that the good white person view is that any discrepancy must be because of racism of some kind and that maybe we can't quite identify it, but racism is the only possible answer. And that it couldn't be that there are cultural predilections. And if there are any cultural predilections, they're only there because of racism. It's because somebody feels shut out from something, not that people just might like something more than other people. And forget that it might be that Kenyans have some sort of thing going on with legs and muscles or something that means that they do tend to run faster, that there might be some biological differences. And no, folks, I have made my views clear <laughs> about race and intelligence too often. I'm not going to spell it all out now. I'm not talking about that. But yeah, there are. You know, we, we are all different peoples. There might be some differences of that kind in various realms, but especially cultural. And there's nothing wrong with that. But nevertheless, it all has to, we have to have perfect equity. And of course, it doesn't matter in basketball, but it matters in terms of school and people playing the bassoon, which is somehow different from basketball and jazz. But nobody's going to specify why, because what we're really doing is posturing and showing that we're good people. It's disgusting. I am disgusted watching smart people pretend that this kind of reasoning is sophisticated. But we're stuck with it for now. Well, the Supreme Court is about to sit again for the fall term 2022. On the docket is a case where Harvard and the University of North Carolina are being sued by students for fair admissions, um, which is an Asian uh, group that are arguing in court now in the Supreme Court that they've been unfairly discriminated against by those institutions as a result of their affirmative action. Uh, policies of selecting students for admission. Uh, and uh, I saw you in the New York Times predicting that the court would likely knock down not just that practice at the University of North Carolina and uh, Harvard, but perhaps more broadly, the use of race uh, in uh, college admissions. That would be a bombshell, uh, perhaps not as big a bombshell as the Dobbs decision reversing Roe versus Wade, but certainly one that will bring people into the streets and that will cause a lot of consternation. And you say that consternation is unwarranted. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. Very simple. A young me should not get special treatment in admission to elite schools. I came up in the 70s and 80s. Maybe it made sense then. But a young me 
No, there should be no special consideration for a black kid who grows up middle class or affluent. Yes, racism may affect that person here and there. However, I dispute that racism defines that person's life. And I also know that white people and other people have serious problems too. It's gotten to the point where the issue is not whether racism exists, but how much? And I feel my daughters, who are now seven and 10, in 10 years should not get special consideration because they're diverse. That doesn't make any sense anymore. How are they diverse? What lessons are they going to teach white people with their diverseness? It makes no sense. And so I think that these things should be about socioeconomics. Should there be affirmative action? Yes. It should address inequality. Black and unequal, unequal, were practically the same thing 50 years ago. But things do change, despite the fact that a certain crowd are committed to not admitting it. And it's at the point where what should be affirmed is that we are a society with inequality. The idea that what should be affirmed is that somebody is brown, and not just brown. As we just said, it's not people are thinking about skin tone, but that racism might affect them in certain ways. Today, if you're a middle class or an affluent black person, racism has not affected you enough for that kind of consideration to make any sense. And the fact that you have a situation where black kids' competence is questioned because everybody knows how the policy works, that black kids end up not having any reason to learn how to hit the very, very, very highest note because you simply don't have to. The idea that that wouldn't be the case, and you know there is you know, economics work showing that the way that you hit the very, very, very highest note is when you absolutely have to. It's as simple as that. Maybe that's not fair, but life isn't. And so my point was that, yes, the, the, that court is clearly about to strike down racial preferences, but that is not akin to how that court feels about guns and abortion and campaign finance and so much else. It's time to let the racial preference thing go. Now, there's a certain kind of person who feels that we have to keep racial preferences until there is no race-based inequity in society whatsoever. I disagree. That's a position. One might defend it, but I disagree with it. I think there comes a point where even within an imperfect society, you have to let people compete. The only way to learn how to survive in true competition is to be forced to compete. And middle-class and affluent black kids can do that. And as to the fact that if there are no racial preferences, then the numbers of black kids at elite schools, and there are only a few of them, really, we're talking about a few dozen schools, will go down. Yes, they'll go down. But those same kids will get excellent educations at excellent schools that are just a little squeak below those. And in the meantime, our culture will learn something. I think that it'll change within a couple generations. But in the meantime, this, the way we're doing it now doesn't make sense. And I will close by saying, whatever anybody's objections are to what I'm saying, do my daughters deserve special treatment when they apply to college because of the racism that colored their lives and because they're diverse from their white peers? And everybody, you know damn well that that makes no fucking sense. It's time to let it go. And if a frankly rather evil court are the ones who make us let it go, well, life is messy. It's time to let it go. I didn't put it that colorfully in the piece, but that's what I meant. 
the jig is up. That's what I've been saying uh, when people ask me, what do you think about affirmative action? I think 1970 was 52 years ago is what I think about affirmative action. Jig is up. Fisher cut bait. It's time to man up and woman up. Let the chips fall where they may. We can handle it. You don't think we can handle it? You, you, you don't think on a level playing field that we can actually excel? If we're 13% of the population, do we have to be 13% of the nuclear physicists, 13% of the uh, heart surgeons, 13% of the, you know, no, we don't. We, we do what we do. We can live with what, what those outcomes are, that, that kind of thing. And I, I think it for two reasons, and I would just reiterate some of the stuff you've been saying. One is incentives. You create a regime where you communicate to the people whose performance you're trying to promote that they don't have to perform at the very, very tippity top level in order to get access to the very, very most exclusive venues. You discourage the effort that they need to undertake to achieve the excellence that will allow them on a level playing field to gain access to those venues. Bad incentives. Uh, the other thing is reputation. You create a regime in which everybody knows that a lower bar has been used to uh, select the people and hence the honor that the selection is meant to confer. You got the prize because you were the very best. Gets uh, degraded by the common understanding that, well, if you're Black, you didn't have to actually be the very best in order to be able to get the honor. Uh, that's, not, that's not healthy. And finally, I think it undermines the institutional integrity of these venues of elite selection, because if you use a different standard to select people for the orchestra, for the freshman class, for the graduate program, on average, you're going to get different performances amongst the people selected. If you have a higher bar for the Asians than you have for the Blacks, on average, the Asians who are selected are going to outperform the Blacks who are selected because the criteria of assessment are correlated with the post-selection performance. So now you create a world in which, after the fact, you actually see differences of performance and you, by race. And you can't acknowledge the existence of those differences of performance because that's humiliating to the people who in the favorite group who have been selected. The net effect of that is that you diminish the ability to assess performance for anybody. In other words, you undermine the integrity of the institution. That's bad. Uh, that's not equality. We want equality, not equality of numeric representation, but equality of dignity and respect, a precondition for which is something approximating equality of mastery and performance. And if that means the numbers have to go down, I can live with that. Whereas a lot of people think that dignity for us is an acknowledgement of redlining in George Floyd. And I consider that reductive and I don't want it. I don't know why well, anything. It, it, it's worse than that, John. It actually allows the dignified party to be the one who actually makes the concession. The whites are the dignified ones in that world. If, if, if the world is a world in which they acknowledge my pain and suffering, you, the one who demands that they acknowledge my pain and suffering, have no moral standing whatsoever. It's the one to whom you appeal, who then gets to decide whether or not to acknowledge your appeal, who is the dignified person, who is the moral agent, who has some kind of choice. So that, that, that you want to make yourself into a client? It, you, you want to throw yourself on the mercy of the court? That's Black self-hate. And, you know, we're the ones who supposedly hate ourselves. The reason we resist that is because we like ourselves. Whereas there's this idea that we're supposed to enjoy being in that down position because there's something poetic about it. No, no. And I guess then that means that we're arrogant. We think we're better than other black people. No, it's that we think we're normal. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I think that um, I'm looking forward to racial preferences being discontinued. And I hope that socioeconomic preferences keep going. I'm sure they will. Legacy admissions of, you know, people who are children of people who've already gone to and maybe committed money to the school, that should be eliminated too. That is not a repast to what I'm saying right here. I've written about it. No legacy either. But this idea that the Huxtables kids from the Cosby show should get special preference, no, it's time to let that go. It no longer makes any sense. And also, something we could talk about on a different show is the whole idea that diversity makes for better education is very, very thin. There's a massive literature that shows, as anybody would know intuitively, that that's something that people started making up in the late 70s because even then, affirmative action was not working the way people were hoping it would. Diversity is a lovely word. It's like saying blueberry muffins, but it is not a crucial part of education to the degree that my kids should get special preference because they're somehow diverse from their white peers. And yes, my kids are half white, but we would make the same argument if they were all black and we all know it. So that won't work either. So I don't like legacy preferences. My kids being biracial does not interfere with my argument in the least. Think about it, folks. Let it go. I just want to add a codicil here. We're not lawyers. And there's a difference between what the Constitution, let's say the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause requires and what the right policy might be. So, for example, all of the arguments that we've made so far are it's a bad idea because at the end of the day, the 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 costs outweigh the benefits sort of thing. There's fairness is mentioned, but it it hasn't been the the key thing. Um, I don't know that there's any constitutional ground for the court to strike legacy preferences, for example, even though I may agree with you that as a matter of policy, socioeconomic should trump giving a benefit. To like, I mean, these are private institutions, many of them that are, uh, you know, if you told a club that they couldn't give preference to the son or the daughter of a longstanding member of that club who's made significant contributions when you're deciding who can join the club, that, that feels to me like a o- governmental overreach to try to regulate that. Um, but as a matter of uh, how we think the ideal policy should be formulated, uh, you could put legacy preferences right there along with racial preferences. I do think there's a legal distinction. There is. But I really, I think that we are at a point where society, good thinking society needs to consider how admissions actually work. And, you know, things are changing. You know this better than me, that it's easier to make this point in the public square than it was 30 years ago, even 20 years ago. I think that public consensus is coming around to the idea that affirmative action is supposed to affirm disadvantage and that disadvantage and blackness are no longer as near synonymous as they once were. I think people get it. It's just whether people are allowed to say it in public and whether administrators will actually start working on it and acknowledging it. And administrators are going to have to be forced because there's an issue of polytests here. They're going to have to be forced. But I think when they are forced to stop this or forced to only be able to do it below board and therefore not as effectively. I think that we will have, it's going to be a kind of progress. And most people will not be able to admit that until 50 years after it. But 
it's progress. We'll see. I, I'm worried about unintended consequences, given that institutions are committed to the diversity outcome. If the means of overt and explicit racial preferences are taken away from them, they will repair to indirect proxy-driven methods of trying to achieve the same outcome. And that could be costly. That, you know, that, that could, you know, for example, get rid of the SAT and the ACT and the GRE and the MCAT and the LSAT because they have disparate hit by race and we want to get more racial inclusion. They won't let us use preferences. So we'll just ignore some information, which if we took into account would uh, lead to an underrepresentation outcome for the minority groups. They'll, they'll be tempted to do things like that. It'll happen. But, you know, I would rather all of that than the system that we have baked in now. And that's the thing. Society will never be perfect. But this business of, you know, black kids being 30 times more likely to get in than the equally qualified Asian kid, and that being what we call a racial reckoning, that being called some sort of, you know, civil rights progressivism. No. And then the institutions pretending it isn't true. No. It's time for it to go. I'd rather see the sorts of stuff that they're going to pull in response. It would be better than what we're seeing now. So yeah, we'll see. But I'm looking forward to what the court is clearly about to do. Not because I'm a conservative, but because I'm a progressive. Wow. Okay. That should draw some reaction from the world out there. That's John McWhorter looking <laughs> forward <laughs> to the court gutting affirmative action. Oh my God. Uh, we have been at this conversation about affirmative action for a long time, and we've been talking about this my entire professional career. And I left graduate school in 1976. Mm. So, so the wheel before is turning. Baki. And yeah, before Baki, before Baki, mm -hmm. Defunis, Defunis at the Washington University Law School was the uh, baseline affirmative action case, 1974, if I'm not mistaken, when I was when I was doing my dissertation. Uh, so we've been at this forever. Um, it's ironic. I've said this here before. It seems to me it's quite ironic that it's a racial minority group that is fostering the, that provides the impetus for this case to go forward. I'm talking about Asian Americans, not all of whom are upper middle class, wealthy, uh, tutored, specially privileged people, many of whom are working class and lower class uh, uh, families that have uh, produced these kids who are off the charts in terms of their academic performance. That's a statement about what's possible to achieve in America, even if you're not white. Um, and I just, I find it ironic that that's the vehicle that has brought this to a head, but here we are. Yep. All right, John, thanks. Thanks to Don Baton, the pseudonym of an orchestra conductor who wants not to be known beyond that, and who has contributed to our discussion here today. And um, thanks again, John. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Glenn. See you very soon.